This episode of the Phil Hayes Show was recorded before we learned of the passing of Trevor Cherry, which is why it's not mentioned in this show. It's our intention to remember Trevor Cherry on next week's episode. And in the meantime, we'd like to offer our deepest sympathies to Trevor's family and friends. Rest in peace, Trevor. Welcome to the Phil Hay Show, a podcast brought to you by The Athletic, along with The Square Ball. There is a 90-day free trial up for grabs right now if you head to theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod. And there you can catch up with everything that Phil Hay has been writing about Leeds United and stuff from 400 of the world's best sports writers. I'm Dan Moylan and with me from The Athletic is Phil Hay. Hello, everybody. And The Square Ballers, Michael Normanson. Hello. And Moscow White's here as well, Daniel Chapman. Hello. Right, Phil, we're getting two separate messages at the moment. Football seems to be gearing up for a return. And on the other hand, we are seeing leagues being cancelled or certainly the ability for leagues to continue being removed, shall we say, if you look at the example of like the French government. It does feel like we've we've got a bit of a fractured situation at the moment and countries moving in separate directions, even in countries that, that share a border like Germany and France. You've got the Bundesliga, which is trying to push for a resumption very, very quickly, although it seemed to already be considering delaying the, the early date that they had to return. But then you've got France who have pulled the plug on um, Leagues 1 and 2 over there and have decided that there's there's no scope for them to finish and, and they're going to have to find a, a separate means for resolving the seasons. The same in Holland where um, they've ended the season without any promotion or, or relegation or, or any um, any trophies handed out. But then you come over to England where certainly in the top two divisions, as has been the case now for, for the best part of a month, Premier League very much pushing for a return and trying to work out the, the, the logistical aspects of that. And, and the, pre- the championship in tow as well, most of it keen to finish the nine games that are left, most of it keen to make sure that, that they do get to the, the end point with 46 games played and, and everything decided. But still a massive amount of work to do in in the meantime and a huge number of variables that are still out with the control. I mean, as it stands at the moment, and I, I said previously that, that the players at Leeds are officially on holiday at the moment. They have to have a set amount um, under the terms of their contract every year. And because they are at home and, and okay, they're, they're supposed to be doing home training programmes, they've been doing that for several weeks weeks now this is the kind of ideal point at which to send them on annual leave for want of a better phrase even though most of them won't travel abroad or go anywhere and to cut that out before the point at which pre-season starts and they're due back at Leeds on May the 12th they'll ideally be back in training on May the 16th and and as I say there is this plan for a kind of mini pre-season of three to four weeks before the games start again but this is all in principle and, and all in theory um, and there are big questions still about whether the government lockdown will be lifted or eased slightly um, on May the 7th and, and if it isn't you would assume that the EFL will then have to take another decision about whether the, the restart date or the proposed restart date of May the 16th needs to move again and from speaking to clubs this week all, some of whom are, are actually pretty confident that they will be kicking a ball again in the middle of June they're arguing and, and debating still how best to pay for the testing that's going to be required because what people are finding out very, very quickly is that sourcing the number of tests and, and testing kits that will be needed will be difficult and it is not going to be cheap. Um, it is going to cost thousands of pounds and there is a debate at the moment going on about who would fund that. So, yeah, you're right that in the sense that England is moving in a, in a positive direction in, in the sense of trying to get games going again and, and has not yet jumped in the way that, that Holland and France have. But the longer this goes on and, you know, you make this point time and again, the longer it does go on, the more you feel that, that they might get pushed to a point where they have to think about finishing the season as it is. We chucked this one around on our podcast earlier on this week, saying we weren't sure which way the wind was blowing. Do you think there is a political 
willingness to get this season finished? And is that sort of borne out by the size of the football industry in this country? And you look at the billions that come in, you know, every few months for the TV rights. Do you think that's kind of uh, the thing that's, is it the tail wagging the dog almost? There is a political will, but I think it's probably less to do with the, the finance of football and more to do with the idea of providing football and live games for a public who are, are slightly sick of their lives at the moment. But again, I think the government will have to be guided by experts and specialists and they'll have to be guided ultimately by what the situation is with, with COVID-19. And that's why testing in, in any of the plans that are being drawn up by the Premier League or the EFL, testing is such a, a central part of it. And I spoke to one championship club this week, not Leeds, who were saying that by their estimate, it it would cost them in the region of £20,000 a week to do the amount of testing that would be necessary under the, the rules that the, the Premier League and the EFL would, would agree to. And clearly, if you have a, a period of pre-season and then you then have games crammed into to four or five matches, and, and it's funny, one, one club employee said to me, it is, it is going to be like wacky races if and when the, the games start up because they're going to be played in such a short period of time that it'll feel like they never stop. But if there are four or five weeks of competitive games, if there are four weeks of, of pre-season training, that's the best part of 10 weeks in which you're having to pay for, for people to be tested and you could be looking at a bill of £200,000 a quarter of a million pounds and, and at a period where clubs are very short of money anyway it's not an inconsiderable amount so I think in an ideal world the government would love the idea of football being back on the TV, football being there for people to enjoy and, and to distract them from the kind of mundane existence that, that we've all got at the moment but they're no different I don't think to the Premier League in that they can't just unilaterally take that decision, it's going to have to be based on the science and it's going to depend on where the virus is at and even if they want to push for behind closed doors they're going to need a cooperative emergency service they're going to need everything to fall into place to let them do that and it still looks to me from this distance that it's possible but extremely complicated let's play out a question now then from sammy who's in singapore asking about what happens next i uh, woke up this morning to read that the french league had just cancelled the season don't know what they're going to do with it. Obviously, Holland have done the same. And I'm starting to worry and get to the idea that maybe England season will get cancelled. Now, if that happens and we stay in the championship out of just being incredibly unlucky, what happens next? Does Bielsa leave? Do we give up on football forever? I'm tempted on that. I won't lie to you. would love to know what your opinion is. What would we do next if that worst case scenario happens? You need to be a little bit careful with the terminology because the, the French season has ended, but it hasn't been cancelled in the sense that it's been voided. They are still talking over there about the best way of resolving this. And, and the more I read about it, the more it sounds like the, the groundswell of opinion is that they should base it on the league as it was after every team had played each other once. So essentially the halfway stage so that there's no imbalance in terms of who you haven't played yet or, or the fixtures that are, are left. I know with nine games to go, there's a temptation to, to just base it on points per game over those 37 games but my colleague um, Tom Warville did a, a really good piece where he was explaining that the, the difficulty of the fixtures that are left depends on where they're being where they're due to be played who it is that you're playing against it's, it's not to say that each of the the nine remaining games is as difficult as as every other one so 
at the moment, Leeds are very much pushing for the nine games to be played. And, and when I speak to them, they still feel that that's the, the prevailing attitude in the championship is that, that that needs to be done. But I think everybody is starting to get to the point of being aware that it may be that another decision needs to be be taken and, and what I can say for sure is that if if the season does end after 37 games and there is to be some points per game model imposed then Leeds will absolutely lobby the EFL and the Premier League to be promoted via some form of metric because the, the reality is that any metric you use would see Leeds go up um, as a top two club if you did it on points per game after 37 games they finished top if you did it after 23 games they're second behind West Brom but they're still a long way clear of the rest of the pack and on that basis alone there's no strong argument on looking at what UEFA would call sporting merit and, and their guidance for sporting merit there's no argument at all for denying Leeds promotion the complication and the chaos would come if there was to be no relegation from the Premier League or if there was to be resistance to the idea of anybody being promoted at all as, as we've seen in, in Holland and I think if that happens you can be sure that clubs like Leeds will go down a legal avenue because there's too much money at stake on the promotion front not to do that it makes no sense not to chase it so I think they're hoping and I think they're confident deep down that it won't come to that I think if the games aren't played they believe that they'll be able to lobby successfully that they should be promoted to the Premier League but again it's not purely their decision it's not wholly in their control and they're going to need to rely on cooperation and support from elsewhere for, for that to happen if it was voided completely if there was no promotion no relegation then I think you can um, you can bed in for some some very very stormy weeks I've got two questions that kind of flow from that the first of which I'll direct at Michael and Moscow what if this does get voided and we do end up staying in the championship what's that going to be like I think Aston Villa are going to remember what we did for them last year and do the sporting thing and offer to swap places with us if we'll remember it I'm sure Dean Smith and John Terry have remembered that good deed and likewise you know I think Norwich owes one from the years of stealing players. So maybe they could swap. We probably still even have the Bournemouth We're Sorry banner in the East End catacombs if they if they swap. So we can't stay in this division. It's going to be completely wrong. It would get to the point where, as suggested there, you would almost think, what is the point of this? Second question then. Second question then, and I'll direct this at you, Moscow. What happens if, as Phil just kind of touched on there, the Premier League decides to pull up the drawbridge and they say, sorry, no dice, but the AFL are saying, well, we want to promote these two teams. What do we do then? Do we get stuck in limbo forever? We have our own private league with West Brom. We just play each other 46 times a season until everybody falls down. I think if we did end up stuck down here, I think a lot would depend on the wider state of football because there's the, I suppose the big one is Calvin Phillips has, has the, the option or the rights to be able to move to a Premier League club if we don't get promoted which raises the prospect that we've seen. We've already watched Calvin Phillips' last game for Leeds United, which is tragic to think of. But then you've got to think who in the Premier League is going to be able to sign him if the economics are are as screwed as they're expected to be. Is there a minimum fee release clause that just becomes completely unrealistic because teams in the top division have had to forfeit broadcasting money or a proportion of it and are still paying the wages of the 50 players they've already got on the books? And we don't know yet whether the the transfer market will, one, come back or two, whether it will be a seller's market or a buyer's market who is going to feel the the advantages so there's every prospect of us keeping something like this team together and there's every prospect of it being gutted and completely changing and in that situation I think it'd be interesting to know what Phil made of Andrea Ratrizzani's couple of quote tweets last night when he seemed to be advocating probably the view I share that 
we don't need to do and France doesn't need to do what it's done and rush. There's actually plenty of time to finish this season without cancelling it now. He seems to be, if those tweets are interpreted correctly, saying finish this season because we don't know when the next season can start anyway. That, I think, is generally common sense. I'm of the view that I don't see the purpose of disrupting this season if there's a high likelihood that next season might be disrupted as well. And and In essence, you'd be left with two seasons that are pretty unsatisfactory and are are left open-ended. I think the complication in this, though, is that Clubs don't have, or at least football authorities, don't have the the ability to let this drag out without the cooperation of of television companies and particularly international broadcasters. And, And while I do think there'll be a lot of cooperation on the financial front, because to a large degree, club sponsors and corporate partners and broadcasting partners all have financial issues of their own now and in in many ways are very reliant on on football for their own businesses so it's not as if they can just walk away and, and leave football alone and, and not as if they can dictate everything but things are going to have to be mindful of the fact that they have contracts and they have obligations and, and they'll expect them to be met as, as closely as possible. The bottom line in France is that the decision came from the very top it was a government decision and, and it seems pretty clear to me that when you move into the realms of football over there they seem surprised at the way in which the government have done this and, and the speed at which they've done it but you would guess and, and you would assume that the government have done this based on scientific advice and, and I know nobody wants to hear this but football is not going to be the priority in these decisions it just isn't and it's going to need to to know its place but I think there's a difference between saying it needs to know its place when it comes to when the season can be resumed or if or, or how and, and saying that if it does end early or if it's forced to end early then it needs to find an acceptable way and an agreeable way of, of resolving the tables and, and I don't think that this late in the season it's fair in any way to, to have a scenario where you have no promotion and, and no relegation I know that the logistics of sorting it out are incredibly difficult and are inevitably going to upset somebody but to do what they've done in Holland where you have teams who are a long long way clear in their league but are not going to be promoted doesn't seem right to me and and I don't think despite everything that's going on with the virus there's any justification for it there are bigger and more important things going on and and there are far more serious issues than, than football but that doesn't really free football of the the responsibility to to do the right thing Looking at it cynically, is there a possibility that the Premier League will not want to pull up the drawbridge on us because we're quite a big pull for them? And I think potentially a league with us and West Brom in next year is, instead of maybe Bournemouth and Norwich, is probably a stronger division for them. I don't think that's cynical at all. I, I think it's a good point. And, you know, I have spoken to people who've said that it's a potential bargaining chip for broadcasters, you know, discussions with broadcasters at the moment, that that if it does materialise that Leeds and West Brom are promoted, Leeds in particular are going to add a very large audience share to what Premier League broadcasters have already. And, and they don't even have to make that argument, Leeds or, or the Premier League, because the figures are there to see in the in the, the broadcast that Sky Sports do at the moment. So, yeah, I mean, they, they do definitely have that in their favour. And I think West Brom equally would would be a good addition to the Premier League and I think can sell themselves in in that sense but again it's going to have to be done in a way that seemed to be you know at the very least relatively fair to everybody and I don't think the Premier League can take a decision that that suits Leeds purely because Leeds have got a massive um, television draw I think they're they're going to have to be fairer and and more consistent than that but again that will be swaying people's thinking and it will be on their minds. I think not to come over to German Ultra about this but when we have a, a situation where we we can't just be guided by the scientific advice on when it might be healthy and safe to play football again but we have to almost give more heed to what the television companies say about when football can be played again it's the one thing the german fans are 
arguing for instead of playing games behind closed doors are saying use this time to to sort out a new way of running football that doesn't disproportionately favor television companies it could be that it's absolutely safe to play football again in let's say October but because we've got a September deadline or whatever deadline from television companies of when they're going to withdraw funding we can't just wait a couple of months and then everything becomes simple that way it's these it feels so much of the of the argument and the discussion and the debate seems to be about fitting what is a a very difficult situation to predict because it's a virus spreading through populations in multiple countries and trying to fit that situation into television scheduling and to me i think the football authorities maybe do need to to look at who is telling them what to do and who are the right people to be listening to going forward and see if they can perhaps come up with a way of having a future game of football that isn't entirely dependent on television money i totally agree with that and you will hear mutterings about sport and integrity, which, you know, I think it is a genuinely held opinion in, in some quarters. But nobody should ever tell you that this is, you know, largely about integrity or in actual fact in any way about the supporters. It's entirely about money. That's what's driving all this. And that is the, the concern. And, and on one hand, you can say that's reasonable because... You know, cl- clubs. A lot of clubs are in debt up to the hilt. They 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 require on loans from their owner in the way that Leeds do from from Radrizani. But the truth of it is that most of them overspend, and most of them spend money that they don't have. Or they aren't generating through natural turnover or through through commercial revenue streams. It, it's money that's being funded via um, either the majority shareholder or the, the board as a whole, or is coming from television revenue. And and that's that's the reality of it. They, they're so dependent on that that the big concern now is that they need the cash and. And they need it. To, they need the cash that's been promised to come, and that is that is at the root of all this. That is why the Premier League are so desperate to get the season finished and 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 to keep some semblance of structure to the season as as the television companies expected it. But again, I don't think it would be appropriate at all for the government to be swayed by that. And actually, I you know I, I agree with the attitude in Germany. Things do very much need to change. It's just that football doesn't seem very good at changing. And you know I can well imagine that when this does die down and when things do go back to some form of normality. You'll see a lot of governing bodies and a lot of clubs acting in exactly the same way as they have for uh, for a while now. I mean, one of, one of my other colleagues, Jack Pitbrook, did a piece on the, the collapse of ITV Digital, which I remember really clearly because I'd just started in journalism and just started doing football writing back then. And it, it's the same thing, really. Essentially, at that stage, clubs were so dependent or had spent so much money because of the deal with ITV Digital that when it went and when it disappeared they didn't know what to do with themselves apart from in some cases going to administration and and borderline fold and it's amazing that 20 years on it's the same thing where the panic is are the broadcasters going to pay us what we're what we're owed because if they don't then we're we're in deep trouble a little bit of a left turn now then Phil quick word if we can about Dominic Matteo it's good to see him up and about again and um, on the road to recovery following his brain tumour operation it is. I went to see Dom before Christmas, uh, a couple of weeks after he'd had his surgery. And, you know, he, he was, I'm sure he won't mind me saying he was tired, obviously. You know, it, it had taken a hell of a lot out of him and they'd had a big shock and, and a big scare. And, and it had also come out the blue. So, you know, for him, it, it wasn't as if he'd been aware of something being problematic. He'd, he'd, 
he'd kind of had the odd headache. There'd been a bit of trouble with his vision and so on. But in in the main, he hadn't picked up on there being a, a major problem brewing. But the thing that was really obvious with him when I when I spoke to him back then was that he was very very positive. Him and his his wife Jess were, were really positive about what they were going to do. They were working hard to look at all forms of of treatment and 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 really to go through things like diet and so on to see if there were ways in which they could help to limit the spread of of the cancer or to keep it at as low a level as possible while he had you know numerous um, sessions of, of radiotherapy and he's been really brave with it and he's fought it all the way through and he, he said at the outset that he would and it was great to read um, last week that, that he got the all clear and, and I spoke to him again on Friday and you know there's, there's plenty left for him to do he's, he's going to have to be mindful of it he's going to have to monitor of it the certain things that he's going to have to have kind of treatment for to help him back reading and writing and, and that sort of stuff but um, very very optimistic and I think a, a massive relief for, for all of them because um, you, you shouldn't underestimate how serious serious it was and you know the, the fact that it, it was 100% life-threatening at the time but he seems to be fully recovered from it he seems to be on on the road back and it's um it's great news looking at Leeds United's relationship with Brazilians down the years Phil it's not necessarily been the happiest trodden path that one um you've written about Adrian this week yeah, and I've done it with Jack Lang, um, who I teamed up with a little while back to write about Rocky Jr., who I think is probably held in slightly different regard to Adrian at Leeds. And in as much as Rocky Jr. became a, a figure of fun in this kind of bizarre World Cup winner who seemed wholly out of place in Leeds and, and actually finished up being something of a of a joke, which seemed sad, really, given his background and, and what he'd done elsewhere. Whereas Adrian was this kind of blonde-haired Brazilian playmaker who... Massimo Cellino loved to bits and was desperate to sign in that transfer window of 2014 when there were 14, 15 players coming in. He was the one and he was the, the main transfer target, the one they held out for right to the, the end of, of the window. And he was the guy who came with one of these nicknames, the, the new Zico they'd called him at Flamengo, which made you think that at the very least, even if they were vastly overhyping him there, he must have something about him that justified people paying him attention. And in the end, what we, we got to see from, from Adrian was a kind of, fish out of water who didn't really look like he knew what he was doing here and didn't look like at any stage he was going to fit into the team or, or to, to contribute in a way that was going to help Leeds keep up uh, stay up in what was a pretty pretty awful season and what Jack and I wanted to do was to go back and, and try and work out why it was that this guy was hyped to the point where at one stage he had a, a buyout clause of £45 million in his contract but he's now playing in, in the Brazilian second division and, and his parent club Sion pretty much signed his own death warrant there by being caught at a poker tournament when he should have been at a game against FC Zurich so it's a long story and, and a strange story and, and in some ways actually quite a sad one Worth pointing out that this guy is still only 25 years old he's not even 26 until he hits the summer you would expect him to be coming into his peak years. I mean, we got him when he was still a very young man. And I mean, he's he's gone well past the point now where he's going to make any major impact anywhere, I think, and, and is certainly never going to play for Brazil's national side, which I think back when he was playing for their under-17s, people expected that he might or, or thought that he, he had that that potential. The, the two ways to look at this, I spoke to Neil Redfern who, who coached him at Leeds in that season for, for the large part of it and actually didn't use him very much. And, and at, at the point where, where Redfern got to talking about his, his actual ability, I think when he was honest, he, he was left with a feeling that actually Adrian wasn't that good, that there was the ability in him to go past players and nice little touches and a few silky skills. But I don't think he felt, Redfern, that... that there was more to Adrian than there was to a player like um, Alex Mowat or, or Lewis Cook. Um, and I think in Cook in particular, he saw far more potential than than he did in 
in Adrian. There is no doubt at all when you start asking around that in Brazil he was placed under far too much pressure. The, the hype was, was excessive. There was too much expectation on him. And, and to be nicknamed the new Zico was a pretty desperate measure from a club in Flamengo who had pretty serious financial trouble. We're, we're not competing in the way that they had in that golden era in the 80s. And we're kind of looking for a, a either a hero to cling to or a, a future transfer fee to cling to. But he, it was interesting because he, he was nicknamed the tennis player by some of the other players at Flamengo and, and tennis in Brazil is seen as a very upper class sport and the thing about Adrian unlike quite a lot of players who come through and, and do particularly well in South America was that he actually came from a fairly privileged background his, his dad had a construction firm in Rio his mother was an architect and at no point did they really struggle financially and I think you definitely have to accept that that too much was asked of him but I think as well as, as you get into hearing more and finding out more about him you do wonder whether he really wanted it enough do you think he maybe suffered a little bit at Leeds from that kind of heightened expectation with the nickname being Brazilian and all that kind of thing? Because I remember we got quite enamoured with him at the square ball. We did a cover in which we were saying, please Massimo, can we keep him? But that was based on nothing more really, I think, than the reputation. He said himself when he came over that, you know, Flamengo have 80 million plus supporters in Brazil and you come under so much scrutiny there that you're very aware of what people are saying about you and it's almost impossible to relax and enjoy your football away from the, the glare of the people who are watching you intently because because that's just how Brazilian football is. And I know he didn't like the weather over here. It was it was a little bit tough for him in that sense, but it did, I do think he quite liked the solitude and he liked the ability to sort of get away from everything that had been swirling around him in Rio. But I mean, Redfern was saying that that even Chilino was fairly hot and cold with him. I mean, Chilino was obsessed with him in that the transfer window when he signed. He was he was the one, and and he'd obviously gone to Cagliari from Flamengo on loan first, but only for a couple of months. And you know, Chilino's insistence was that they would cancel that loan at Cagliari once Chilino bought into to Leeds United, and they would get Adrian to um, to Ellen Road ideally in time for the start of the season. But of course, he signed about two or three months into uh, two or three weeks into the season, so his fitness wasn't wasn't perfect and. Redfern said that eventually Chilino got to the point of saying, you know, he's brilliant one day, you really need to be playing this guy. And then the next day, oh, he's shit. You know, don't include him in the team. He's he's not up to it. And then, of course, as people might have forgotten, as that season uh, the season drew to a conclusion, there were big issues and, and um, an investigation over the fact that, that Adrian was third party owned in Brazil. And the, the FA came to meet with him, spoke with the club, um, looked into the possibility that Leeds had breached third party ownership rules by signing him. And somebody at the time sent me an internal memo and an email that was sent around the club which made it clear that they were very very worried about it and were, were almost expecting there to be punishment on the back of it but the saving grace I think was that at that point they hadn't actually paid a fee for him to anybody and in the end there were there were no charges but it, it having at the outset Chilino having spoken about the possibility of taking him permanently from Flamengo I think in the end he and others were pleased to see him go from the club and I actually don't think at that point Adrian had any interest in staying either. So did we actually pay anything for him then at any stage during this? I have absolutely no idea how it, it shook down. I, I tried to contact um, Adrian's agents um, to ask if, because they complained at the time that they were owed money that had been agreed with Chilino, which was part of the, the, the third party ownership issue. Um, Chilino denied that and said everything had been agreed with Flamengo. Um, and I did try to ask Chilino if, if money had been paid, but again, he, he didn't comment on that. So the honest answer is I, I don't know. And, and the whole arrangement and the whole setup seemed to be very, very odd. And, and actually, if you pick through Adrian's career in, in 
general. It's a real mishmash of moves. He's spent a little bit of time on loan in Turkey. He can speak French, so he, he went to he went to the top division in France with Nantes. But then when he, when his time was up at Flamengo and he left permanently, rolled up at Zion in Switzerland, which again seemed very far off the beaten track and a, a rather difficult move to explain. And, and it does feel like he's reached the point now where he is just drifting and he is just kind of marking time. And he's back with a, a Brazilian second division club now. But from reading the Brazilian press, the deal that's been agreed is such that he won't be paid in full and until he's he's reached a, a decent level of match fitness because he hadn't played uh, at any level of first-team football for several months and is clearly a long, long way short of, of where he needs to be. So I think he's probably over his peak now and I'd be very surprised if at any stage going forward he makes a, a big splash anywhere else. We gave him the nickname Unicorn at the square ball. So, Michael, could you shed a bit of light on where that came from? I couldn't honestly tell you. Uh, I think he was just a bit unique and special, wasn't he, in that team? I think a lot of the hope we had attached to him was just the fact that that team was generally pretty poor and quite dull to watch. As much as Lewis Cook was in there and was obviously a very good player, we didn't have anyone in the midfield at all who really went past players other than him. And, and even he was more suited to sitting back a bit more. You know, when you've got, when you've been watching Bianchi and Murphy and Sloth and, and Moa, again, a decent football, but couldn't run past anyone to save his life. The first glimpse we got of Adrian, well, the first glimpse we got of him was some YouTube compilations where he looked, he did look like the best player in the world. So to go from having him around the team just felt a little bit exciting. And he had the fact that he had been linked with other big clubs before coming to us made you think that maybe even if he'd gone a bit off track for a while, he's probably still got that magic there and, and maybe we can get it out of him. But in the end, obviously it was... Um, it was a lot of hype and nothing else. I've heard Tim Vickery talk about this a lot with players from Brazil, that there's this massive desire to hype players up in, um, as they're coming through the youth system over there, both from the fans who obviously want a good player to look forward to, but also the agents who look to move them abroad as soon as possible. Because And the clubs themselves are perfectly happy to buy into this as well because there's a, a massive transfer fee for them there. So it's probably feeling in the end a little bit sorry for him because... He shouldn't really have been in Leeds. There is a highlights reel on YouTube, um, which was put together by his agency after he moved to Nantes. And without being unkind, I have to say that if that was going to be my highlights reel, and it was all based on his time at Leeds, I, I think I would rather that it was deleted than published. There was very, very little in it to make you think, what a you know, what a cracking signing this is. When we spoke to, Jack Lang spoke to um, a guy called Emerson Navia, who coached Adrian for Brazil's under-17s. And, you know, he, he was pretty effusive actually about Adrian's ability and said, you know, he had everything that he kind of looked for in that type of player. You know, he took risks and good at getting past players and good on good with dead balls and you know could play in a variety of positions and also you know good finisher could could score goals. But I think the the, the crucial quote in it was him saying, did I, did I think he would be a crack? Which is you know their equivalent of phrase for a global star. No. He was talented, but a crack is a rare thing. And that came up time and time again, that it wasn't that Adrian didn't have anything about him. It was just that in trying to tout him as not only the next Zico, but as another player who a South American club could earn a fortune from by touting him out to European clubs, he just wasn't going to be that guy. And he was briefly linked with, with Manchester United and around the time when he signed the new contract at Flamengo and, and had a, had that buyout clause of around about 50 million euros inserted into it but again you, you find that goes on quite often in, in other countries as well like Portugal I remember Harry Sacco having a huge buyout clause in his deal at, at Sport in Lisbon and when you actually saw him in the flesh and when you watched him play in the championship there was no way that anybody was going to pay anything like the, the money that, that Lisbon were, were kind of purportedly asking for and, and you assume that Lisbon themselves knew that it was wholly unrealistic it was just there in case overnight or, or somehow Sacco turned 
turned out to be dynamite and suddenly you were holding out for a for a huge fee. But I think in reality, with Adrian, he was worth nothing like the valuation that they were trying to set on him. How do you look back on him now then, Moscow? The unicorn thing came about because we knew, at least we thought he was brilliant and we never got to see him. And I looked up something I wrote about him from the time today, which I actually headlined Pony just for a, a horse without anything on its head. Because I like, a, I think it was trying to combine a genuine reference, but then also um, a band called Period Pains, who had a, a song called Daddy, I Want a Pony. And that's pretty much how I felt about Adrian the whole way through. Um, I wanted a pony. I wanted a player at Leeds who was brilliant. And I think it's why I then latched onto Bataka later on for the, the same reasons Michael was talking about. You just suddenly have this player who he looked like he might be able to do something that might be good, which obviously we now know when we look back and talking about his, his highlights real from Leeds, he couldn't. But just the fact that he looked like he might be able to, his debut when he came on as a substitute away at Rotherham made the entire trip worthwhile because he was dribbling and it was unbelievable. I couldn't remember the last time I'd seen a player actually dribbling past other players and wearing a Leeds United shirt. And I think it's... You know, it's it's the paucity of the, the football that we were watching throughout most of the 2010s that when he came along, I just wanted it to work. And I, I, the article I'm talking about, I was demanding for him to play and using as an argument, Peter Lorimer had said that uh, he didn't think, he thought there were maybe questions about his fitness, but he thought he might be better suited to the Premier League than in the Championship. And my argument was, right, well, if we've got a Premier League player, play him. And if we lose games, I don't care because we always lose. So just put him on the pitch yeah, but, but I had a look through as well today at some of the goals he scored at um, Sion in the last couple of years. And um, there's not really there's not really a lot there. There's, there's nothing really happening. Um, and it's a shame. The, the odd thing about this and almost the irony was that in, in the end, and this kind of conclusion, you, you, I reached the view that actually he looks pretty happy. I mean, he, he's got a massive Instagram account with uh, about 230,000 followers. And, and when you look through the pictures, there's him and his, his partner, a, a, an actress and a, a journalist. There's him and his daughter in the swimming pool. There's him generally looking pretty content a lot of the time. And the story of the poker tournament was that um, at the time he was injured, and this is April last year when he was at Zion, so he wasn't going to play against FC Zurich, but the club's protocol was that players, even if they were injured and even if they were lacking fitness, had to be at every single first team game. So he entered a, a poker tournament, the France Poker Festival down in Geneva with the expectation that he was highly unlikely to win and was probably going to get eliminated early and if he did then he'd have more than enough time to get back to um, the game between Zion and Zurich and, and in the end he went all the way and he won the tournament and he won around about £17,000 and so in the end on the night when um, when Zion and Zurich were playing he was pictured behind this poker table massive stack of chips in front of him with his partner on his lap and trophy there and, and Gucci hoodie and everything else and it's very hard not to look at that and think he has been sucked in by the high life but actually you know what he's he's pretty happy with it and clubs are not obliged to pay him to enjoy that sort of lifestyle but if it's what he wants and if it's what's making him happy then you know who, who are we to argue and the other thing about this is that you know all Brazilians aren't necessarily destined to be brilliant there are going to be mediocre ones and poor ones as well that's just the way it works in football isn't it and uh, you do wonder have we Will we ever maybe have a good Brazilian? Will it take Premier League football and uh, billions and billions of pounds coming into Ellen Road before we can see a good one? In a world, yes. 
And I ask that in the context of Roque Jr. as well, because there's a man who uh, who had a backstory. Yeah, he did. And and as I say, I, I've always felt, I, I feel more sorry for him, I think, than than Adrian, much as I do sympathise with the, the pressure that was placed on, on Adrian and, and the, the ridiculous expectation that was there. But the bottom line with Rocky Jr. was that he wasn't wholly a myth. You know, he, he had done good things. He'd won the World Cup. He, he you know, he, he should have been a, a good signing. But I spoke to, to Eddie Gray about him and, and he just said, I never, ever saw it with Rocky Jr. You know, he said, nice guy, never caused a problem, wasn't, you know, wasn't disruptive or anything like that. But I would watch some of what he did in training and kind of stand there baffled by the fact that I was supposed to be watching a, a World Cup winner. And again, I think it was just a weird move which should never have happened and, and ultimately was never going to go well for him. Third part of the podcast now, which we turn over to you. We give you the option each week via Phil's Twitter feed to pick the topic for discussion. Three went up there this week and you chose as follows. In third place, beating QPR Christmas 2010 was third with 22% of the vote. Rahubka's last stand came second, 36.7% of the vote. But you were slightly surprised at this winner, Phil. Jufi, El Hadj Juf won this one at 41.3%. I've been I've been surprised by the outcome of a few of these polls, and I thought everybody would wade into Rahubka, um because it's a, a kind of story that that has to be told. But I guess he's he's got that kind of enduring appeal, Jufi, isn't he? He's um th- there's always something to to discover about him, and there's always some controversy lurking in the background. So maybe I shouldn't have been surprised. Yeah, everyone loves like Hollywood style gossip, and he's a man who, whilst being from Senegal, has certainly indulged in the Hollywood lifestyle. Though when you look at you know the cars that he's driven, for example, I mean I've. The, the document that we share here in the cloud just to um, be able to compare notes. I've put a couple of pictures on there of his cars and there's the bright silver gleaming Mercedes on there with the number plate that spells out the word fancy. And then there's the gold Cadillac underneath it. And when I say gold, I don't just mean like it's a, a sort of a yellowy colour. I mean like it is gold coloured, like the colour of a gold medal. I don't think I've ever met or dealt with a player with a thicker skin or, or someone who's more impervious to what people think of him. I mean, you can genuinely say with him, and I don't know whether this is how he actually feels, but nothing about him gives the impression that he cares what 99% of people think. I mean, he just does what he does. He goes where he goes. He puts it in when he feels like it. He doesn't when he doesn't. And that seems to keep him keep him relatively happy. And, you know, that, that just is how he is. I mean, his move to Leeds was kind of symptomatic of the club at, at that time. And you almost have to transport yourself back to that summer to remember what it was like and, and why it was that that even became a serious consideration. You remember that Warnock was in charge for the for his first transfer window at, at that point. And he'd been manager for the best part of two or three months, but was very much of the view in the, the second half of the season when he took over from Simon Grayson that the squad was nowhere near good enough for the playoffs. He said that numerous times. And I think after the, the one-all draw against West Ham, when Becky looked like he was going to win that game and actually Leeds might have been getting back into the reckoning but then West Ham nicked an injury time equaliser and you know it was it was a point and it wasn't enough it did kind of drop to bits for the rest of the season there was the 7-3 against Forest. they lost I think I'm right in saying 6 out of 9 games towards the, the end of the season so it was quite a major overhaul when it came to the summer transfer window and there were plenty of ins and outs so Warnock sold Adam Clayton to Huddersfield for the money he sold Andy Lonergan so that he could get Paddy Kenny in Snodgrass leaves he goes goes to, to Norwich for about three million pounds. But then you start to see how much money there, there really is in the background. So Leeds did Jason Pierce um, centre back from Portsmouth for around about half a million pounds. And, and there were some other signings like Luke Varney and David Norris and, and Lee Peltier. But the real um the real indicator of how it was was Joe Ward. 
who at the time was another Portsmouth player, right back that, that Warnock was, was very, very keen to sign. And and he got so close to it that Ward passed a medical at Thorpe Arch and was basically ready to join had Leeds stumped up the, the £400,000 that needed to be paid. And, and in the end, Leeds wouldn't do it. And that was kind of the point at which the Bates sale to GFH or the Bates sale to somebody from the Middle East was starting to to gather some some traction. So we got to the point shortly before the start of the season where Warnock needed a winger and needed a forward. And and I went to do an interview with him in his office at Thorpe Arch because we always did, at the Evening Post, we always did pre-season supplements that included a manager interview, various player interviews and all the, the usual stuff that you would expect to preview the season. And at the end of it, he sat back and he said to me, I'm thinking of signing El Hadj Juf. And, and my first thought was, well, that seems a bit outlandish and something of a risk. But the more I thought about it, the more it kind of made sense in, in as much that he needed a forward and a winger, Warnock, but he couldn't afford both and, and he had very little in the way of a budget. Juf could fit as a winger, he could fit as a as a striker if he needed to. And crucially, in, in the short term, he was willing to kind of sign from game to game. And he was only asking for five grand a week, which was a mile below what he'd been earning elsewhere. He was a free agent. He'd gone from Doncaster, I mean, kind of straight up towards Rangers in Glasgow and, you know, been kind of all over the place. Place and and not really finding anywhere to to call home and and in the end the the deal was done and it still strikes me now as a, a very very odd signing and and it's peculiar that that it came about in the way that it did but I think it does shine a light on the way that Leeds were operating in the transfer market at that period and and I still think looking back that it's a deal that Warnock only did because he felt like he he had no alternative in those positions and not a player that he'd spoken very fondly of in the past because you remember he referred to him as a sewer rat didn't he. Well, that's football, isn't it? You know, depending on where you stand and depending on how things look, your, your opinion or your attitude can can change pretty quickly. And yeah, having said that about him, you assumed that they were... Not only did you assume that Warnock would never sign him, but you assumed that Juf would have absolutely no interest in playing for him at all. But on, on the contrary, Juf came on trial. It was very well behaved at the start and not a problem. And I always remember, you know, him wandering into the stadium. I think it was before the opening game of the, the season, 2012-13 season, which was a League Cup game. And sort of trailing down the touchline in front of the West stand with his white Mohican and thinking he is actually about to join and I think the fact that he was about to join and it had reached that that stage made you realise that Leeds were pretty ill-equipped for that season that, that they were highly unlikely to challenge uh, and it also made you realise that to a large extent the, the drawbridge had been pulled up in the in the boardroom and that the funds to invest in the way that, that Leeds needed to just simply simply weren't there and, and it was a needs must transfer and I don't think anybody has ever tried to paint it in a different way. You say it was an odd transfer. Was um, was Juve represented by Willie Mackay at that time? Well, Juve had been at Doncaster, and if you remember, in that period, Willie Mackay was overseeing a lot of the transfers that were coming into Doncaster. He seemed to be in charge of the recruitment um, strategy, and needless to say, a lot of the players who were coming in had ties to him. So that was why Chimbonda rolled up there. That was why Juve rolled up. It was a very odd period in which Doncaster, from a, a long way out, you might think mm, having a bit of a go here, but actually, it, once you got closer to it, it was just a weird mishmash of players, and and there was general disarray in the background. I can't, in all honesty, remember if Willie Mackay was representing him at that point but it wouldn't surprise me in, in the slightest if if he was um, but even regardless of that I think the, for Warnock he couldn't see another option that he was going to be able to do on the same amount of money and he didn't want to go for a striker who couldn't play as a winger because he, he felt he needed somebody out wide he didn't want to go for a winger who couldn't play as a striker for the same reason so lo and behold 
he settled on Juve. And, you know, even to begin with, it was a challenge for him to get Juve onto a permanent contract. It took a lot of work to get to the stage where Juve was given this five grand a week deal, which even then only ran to, to January. It was half season contract. So there was a lot of inaction at Leeds. Uh, things had kind of ground to a halt in, in the background. And I guess when, when you look at it now, when you reflect on it, it's not a surprise that the season went on to become such a right royal mess. Anybody who comes with a separate controversies section in Wikipedia, you know, is going to be interesting to say the very least. I mean, this thing goes on for paragraphs and paragraphs and paragraphs. There's across three separate nations in France, England and uh, and Scotland as well. And I remember thinking at the time when he was signed, thinking, oh God, oh no, oh God, this is going to be interesting. I mean, what was it like for you? What did you think at the time? Exactly the same. You you were trying to mark out the date in your diary or the point in the season at which there was going to be a, a huge blow up. And and I have to say, if I'm being fair to him, he actually kept his nose really clean under Warnock. I think Warnock would say, I remember Warnock being interviewed on, on TalkSport and being asked about Juve. You know, what did you think of him? How difficult was he to manage? Was he a nightmare? And him saying, no, to be honest, Juve was okay. You know, I didn't have any great problem with him. I didn't have any particularly great issues. And actually, there were spells in which Juve played really well for Warnock. But once Warnock went and Brian McDermott came in, that was the point at which things started to happen with Juve. That was the point at which he was sent off for gesturing to the Brighton fans for grabbing his nether regions. That was the point at which he started going AWOL to various funerals and, and he had personal issues in the background, which meant that he was away and absent from training for a long, long time. So his weight wasn't adequate and his fitness wasn't adequate. And it became virtually impossible for McDermott to use him. But certainly initially, people would say he was a pretty decent pro. He was he was up you know, he he was off the wall and he was eccentric and he was kind of showbiz and and you know it, it was odd having him around Thorpe Arch because of who he was. And, and what he drove. But I don't think in Warnock's time he was a particular problem. What did you think of him then when he arrived, Michael? I was pretty gutted, to be honest, when we signed him. Um, I, I, like you say, the controversy section is just one of those things you look at. When you think of Juve, you, the main things you think of are him spitting and driving stupid cars and falling out with people. And I think to throw him into the mix with Neil Warnock, who had previously slagged him off, it's like you say, you were just waiting for that moment. Probably you were expecting it to come in, certainly by the end of September, where they'd fallen out and he was under contract and we were no, he was no longer allowed at the training ground. As it was, admittedly, it was a very bad team he was playing in. He wasn't a bad player for us, actually. He did some all right stuff. He didn't really run, because uh, I think, like Phil suggests, maybe he doesn't either couldn't or didn't particularly want to, didn't think that was his job. But overall, he was actually fine for us. He stands out in one regard because he's the only player who's been mentioned in the uh, separately in the introduction to the club accounts because we gave £100,000 to their charity. So I think that's, a, that's an achievement worth remembering. He was always a bad fit for Leeds because he was so famous. And I think if you look through Leeds United's history, we don't really do famous players. And when we do do them, they don't work out. The only genuine sort of star I can think of who we've signed and has gone on to be an uncomplicated success is really Alan Clark. Since then, you've maybe got Tony Curry was a really big name when he came. But then I'm talking about, I mean, Viduka it had a certain reputation, but he came from Celtic. Decor had been at Everton and at Lawrence before he came to us. But you're not talking about players who would be headline material for everything that they did, like Juve and like Thomas Brolin was when he came and that didn't work. And Lee Sharp when he came and that didn't work. And Robbie Fowler was a huge international footballer when he came and that didn't work. And I struggle to think of, of players who Leeds have signed with that sort of level of fame and it's gone on to work. 
And so from that point of view, it just didn't seem like a good fit from the start. When when the first questions your manager is asking is, you used to call him a, a sewer rat, but now you think he's okay. You're immediately, it's not about, oh, how many goals do you think he's going to score or how many assists is he going to get? It was never a, a good look from the start. And it just felt like one of a, a series of, of decisions at, at Leeds. I mean, I know Phil's saying it's the only player Warnock could have got in for the money that we had to spend, but you all, I always think, you know, there's somebody else. You've got to be able to sign somebody else and just play them instead. There's there's a world of footballers out there and it felt like it just didn't seem to be a player that leads at that time as we were catapulting ourselves into chaos that I was particularly glad to see arriving. And I don't really remember him being that good. I thought he was a bit clapped out, spent most of his time in midfield with Tongi and Brownie. And um, since the, th- the three of them couldn't run, it wasn't exactly adding to the, the dynamism of what was going on at Elland Road. Yeah, he, he was wonderfully average. Um, and you have to remember that he was um, 31, 32, Leeds were his last club. So, you know, he, he was very much counting down the days. And I think that's what became apparent, certainly in the McDermott era, when, when him and, and Juve were together for the, the kind of brief spell that they were. It was obvious that, that Juve had just reached the point where he was playing out his last contract. He he, might, he could have gone elsewhere. He could have drifted away to, I don't know, the Middle East or, or whatever else. But you knew that as a face of European football, and certainly in, in England, he, he was pretty much done and, and didn't have too much to offer, which isn't to say that in you know that season that Warnock had, there were numerous players who were infinitely better than him. It was just a you know a very, very average side right across the board. But the, the truth is that it did become difficult for, for McDermott. And I mean, he, he denied this at the time, did Brian, but at the start of the, the 2013-14 season, after um, McDermott had taken over from Warnock, Leeds circulated a list of players to, to other clubs in the country and, and Juve was on it. Because in part, because again, McDermott wanted other players to come in and there wasn't much of a budget at Leeds and he, he needed to try and generate some cash. But also because he was starting to to wonder how exactly it was that Juve was, was going to fit, whether Juve was going to be fit and whether or not he was going to be of any use as, as the season went on, which ultimately he wasn't. But there were no takers at that point. There was nobody who was particularly interested in. And you knew that it was a, a kind of downward slope from that point on. And, and once Chilino got his got his foot in the door and came in the club, you knew without fail that, that Juve was going to be on the release list at the end of the season. I tell you what, I'd have paid to have sat in a room with El Hadj Juve and Massimo Chilino. That'd have been amazing. Well, Chilino had complete control over the, the retained list that summer. McDermott was pretty much absent from the club by that point. And so it was done It was done in a, a kind of single-handed manner by Chilino. Although even then, it was only just done before the um, before the EFL's stated deadline for when it needed to be done. Chilino bizarrely had gone to the races in York. So was was at the race course as people at the club were badgering him saying, look, we need to confirm our retained list because we've literally got, you know, a matter of hours before we'll have a problem with the EFL because we'll we'll have missed their deadline. I don't know whether the two of them actually met, to be honest. I've I've no idea and I suspect that in that particular window they, they won't have done. Because prior to Christmas and Juf was, was still on, on the books at the time, you know, and, and he was still kind of involved, but he wasn't he wasn't really playing a great deal. He missed one game to go back to um to, to go to the funeral of a guy called Bruno Metsu, who was the coach um who had taken Senegal to the two thousand and two World Cup, someone who who Juve saw as a mentor, um somebody whose funeral he, he desperately wanted to be at. So McDermott, you know, relented with that, agreed that he could go and, and there was no great issue. But then uh, you know, not too long after Nelson Mandela died and Juve decided that as a you know an African footballer he wanted to be at that funeral again and, and he thought he could be 
be present. And we went to a press conference with McDermott and said, how do you feel about this? And and he said, well, look, it's, it's Nelson Mandela, so what can I say? But he was giving you that look as if to say, you can't believe this really, can you? You know, you can't believe that again, he's going to be absent and that he's disappearing for, for this down in, in South Africa. And you know, again, we we spoke to McDermott and said, "Look, where does that leave him then? You know, what what are you going to do with him?" And he said, "Well, there's no particular personal issue between us." But I've got his his quotes here, um, and he's saying it's it's been difficult for me to be able to give him an opportunity because, to be quite frank, he's not been around the training ground much, and it's a tough one. You know, that's where we're at with him at the moment. I'm not saying there's an issue because there isn't, but training wise with the group, he's not done a lot, and to give himself a chance, he has to be training and to be right up to speed. And in the end, Juice's last game, as it turned out, was the the match against Ipswich on the 28th of January where Chilino tried to get Gianluca Festa on the bench alongside McDermott and McDermott refused and you know the, it was the kind of precursor for Mad Friday and everything that we discussed in, in a previous podcast but it, it was coming to an end at that point and over the next three or four months I just remember Juf barely being around when he was around looking like he was in no condition to play and, and as I say you were just waiting for him to be released. Was there any acrimony about his departure or was it just kind of waiting for the inevitable at the end of the season? No, if I'm being perfectly honest, I don't think anybody could be bothered to be acrimonious about it. I don't think Juve particularly cared whether he was involved by that stage. I don't think McDermott felt like he really needed him to be involved. Um, GFH were selling, so they weren't really giving any thought to who was on the wage bill and who wasn't. Um, His contract was up, so Chilino was just going to give him the bullet anyway. And and from that Ipswich game on, McDermott was barely able to concentrate on the squad or or on individual players because he was constantly looking over his shoulder, wondering whether he was going to be fired. There were periods at which the players were wondering if they were going to be paid. And of course, the wages, I think, for March were, were late in the end and there was um there was a lot of controversy over that so juice became a massively massively peripheral issue which in the end was of zero consequence leads weren't going to go up they, they weren't going to go down there were going to be huge changes under Chilino in the summer that followed and I can't remember anybody in Leeds any supporter clamoring for for Juf to stay or Juf to have his contract extended I think everybody just looked at it as a experiment which was neither here nor there and might as well be ended Presumably you never spoke to Mini Juve then, who I imagine was gutted. No, never spoke to Mini Juve. And actually, over the course of the um, the two seasons that Juve was there, didn't speak to him a great deal either. He, he like say, he was around in parts, particularly initially under Warnock, but then he, he was he was gone and, and he was he would float in from time to time but you had no expectation of him playing and, and no expectation of really crossing paths uh, with him either and I haven't spoken to him since he, he left and the only time I see him rolling up in the media is when he seems to be getting stuck into Steven Gerrard or, or Jamie Carragher um, and I don't think there was enough bad blood with anybody at Leeds for him to ever um, dish it out in this direction but with him you never know What is he up to now? I have absolutely no idea I have literally no idea where he is, but I mean, he's he's long since retired. He's almost 40 um, and he finished it at Leeds. Like I say, his last game was January 2014. I believe he's back home in Senegal and, and he does, I mean, t- to be fair to me, he does have some charity initiatives going on. You know, he, he, you will find people who say that he has the capacity to be very, very generous and, and very, very helpful. But then on the on the flip side, he has the capacity to do all the things that have left him that massive charge sheet on um, on Wikipedia. So I would imagine he's dotting about enjoying his, live, enjoying his spot um probably quite enjoying his life, but I haven't heard from heard of him properly in a long, long time. Leaves me with the question of, you know, when he did leave England, how do you shift a gold plated Cadillac when you're taking that to the second hand car dealer? 
you need a big ship, wouldn't you? You need a big ship container. And I don't think he just had one, did he? I think he had um I think he had plenty. But that doesn't strike me as the sort of thing that Juf would lie awake worrying about at night. I think one way or the other it would just get sorted and, and it would be left to, to somebody else to sort. But you'd like to think he got he got out of England with that car intact. Hope so. It looks expensive enough. We'll wrap it up there then, Phil. Thank you for that, Michael. Moscow, thank you as well. We'll be back next week. That 90-day free trial is still yours if you head to theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. There you can catch up with all Phil's writing. All the over 120 podcasts in the um, in the Athletic suite, and they're all ad-free. There's no clickbait, no pop-ups on there. So go have a look. Theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. We'll speak to you next week. Ta-ra. Sports Social Podcast Network.